Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Matrix Green Pill podcast. Today, we bring you part one of a two part conversation. My name is Melvin, and I'm thrilled to be hosting someone who has influenced me tremendously during my early days. So you can blame all my faults on her. Allow me to introduce to you guys the inspiring Anjali Nerlikar, or Anjali Ma'am, as most of us address her. Anjali is a professor, an author, and a passionate trekker. Anjali, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Melvin. Uh, glad to be here. Okay, so I'm going to give a full introduction to our audiences. Anjali is an associate professor in the Department of African, Middle Eastern, and South Asian Languages and Literatures. She's also been an instructor at various colleges in India, Symbiosis College of Arts and Commerce, in Miras College, and at the Polygon Institute in Bahrain. She has authored the book Bombay Modern, Arun Kolatkar and the Bilingual Literary Culture. She's co-edited a special double issue of Journal of Post-Colonial Writing and is co-editing a forthcoming special issue of South Asia, Journal of South Asian Studies, along with Francisca Orsini on post-colonial archives. Her other publications and research include work on multilingualism and literature, Indo-Caribbean post-colonial literature, and comparative Indian and post-colonial modernisms. Her ongoing project is the archive of multilingual post-1960 Bombay poetry at Cornell University, titled the Bombay Poets Archive. Wow. Anjali, welcome, and I'm so glad to have you over here. Melvin, this is such a treat to talk to you after, I mean, the years we have spent together at Symbiosis College. So I'm very, very happy to be here. Now, before I start waxing eloquent about you, I would like to hear from you first. So if you could tell our audience a little bit about you, your background, and how you ended up being in the U.S. That question could be answered in any so many different ways. I mean, it's 59 years of my life, right? Let me try. I'll just give you some basic background and you can tell me if that fits the response to this question. So I'm, my childhood was in Pune. I was born there. And my parents were Kannadikas, which means that I grew up speaking Kannada at home, Marathi with friends outside. So I claim both languages as my own. And right now, of course, I speak Marathi at home with my own family. So my parents, one of the significant things in my life is the background of my parents, because I think that influenced me a lot. They grew up in relative poverty. And my mother was removed from school in fourth grade because her father didn't think that girls needed to be educated. And she had such a passion all her life for reading, for education, something that she did not get in her life, that she made sure her kids, my brother and I, were focused precisely on that. So growing up, I knew that my job was primarily to secure a good education, to get a job, to be independent, all the things my mother couldn't do for herself, but sort of dreamed that I would. I mean, that's one very important part of my background. She died, my mother died way too early. She died at 44. She was the singular influence on my life. So it's this contrast to my mother who studied only till 
fourth grade. I'm somehow kind of living, I feel that I'm living something that she wanted for herself. That is amazing. And then after that, um, much of my education was in Pune. I studied at Dastur Girls High School. Do you know that school? I do. And then Ferguson College, University of Pune. And so I got my BA, my MA, my MPhil from Pune. And then taught at various colleges, including, of course, spectacularly, where <laughs> we had the trekking club and we had those years, right? That's Symbiosis College of Arts and Commerce. That was in the mid-90s. And then Shashank took various jobs. The first one is in Bahrain and I followed him. That's your husband? Yes, that's my husband. For four and a half years, I was there in Bahrain. Then he took a job in the U.S. So I came here to the U.S. And that is how I landed in Kansas, where I completed my PhD at the ripe old age of 45 years. I was the oldest person in my class. Wow, inspirational. (laughs) So then I completed my PhD there and applied for jobs in universities and colleges here. So moved across from Kansas to LA to upstate New York and now finally have landed in New Jersey. So how long has it been over here in New Jersey? In New Jersey, it's 10 years at Rutgers University. Okay, so I'm going to take you back a bit. My memories of you were easily one of the most influential professors that have ever come across in my life. You treated students as peers, engaged with them as equals. So how did you come to employ that strategy? Or was it just who you are as a person or maybe influenced by your background and everything with your mom? Everything that I do, I think, is inflected by the history of my mother and her philosophy. I mean, my feminist ideas, my political philosophy, my focus on education, everything comes from her. So definitely that goes without saying. But I don't know, Yar. I mean, first of all, it's a two-way thing. It just doesn't work. A charismatic, fantastic teacher, and then whoever comes, it works out. I think a lot had to do with the bunch of students, all of you, the students at Simbi, Symbiosis overall, but like absolutely my motivation or my, the thing that inspired me or energized me, I should say, was the trekking club at Symbiosis College. I took so much energy from all of you guys, right? So that definitely was there. But I also felt that, and I continue to feel, that I don't really know enough much about world, life, literature, you know? You guys, it's at Symbiosis and generally students have so much to teach me about youthfulness, creativity, motivation, and so on. So I start with the point of not knowing or or maybe, I don't know, not being, I'm not confident about what, like, you know, what the meanings of things are, what I know, and, you know, those kinds of things. So I still feel like that. And I think maybe that was it. I don't know. It's difficult to say what it was. I certainly know that I took a lot of energy, inspiration from the Trekking Club and all of you guys. So if I could take that further, so was it your interaction with the students at the Trekking Club that kind of shaped up the way you interact with students? Or was it the other way around? You generally had this peer sort of a relationship with your students and that kind of continued into the Trekking Club. At the Trekking Club, as you know, This was in the mid-90s, and I'm in touch with um, at least 20, 25 people from the trekking club. To this day, every time I go back to Pune, I meet with 
them, their spouses, their kids, everyone. And it's just amazing. I have this huge, large family. So the trekking club at Symbiosis is a very big part of my teaching experience, my teaching philosophy I got from there. It's definitely there, but I think I get a lot of energy. I thrive with from my interaction with students. Like, for example, right now during COVID, it's been so isolating, so depressing to sit at home at your kitchen table and just interact with the world through a screen. And it's been a year of that. We're still not uh, like going out now, going out or meeting people, haven't had people over. And so my class on Zoom with my students has been that saving grace where I literally feel myself being picked up mentally, sort of spiritually even, by talking to the students, by seeing their enthusiasm. I'm sure your students, they would be looking at you and being really inspired by everything that you do and their interactions with you. Are yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, what am I? Who am I? There are millions of people like me. It's not like I'm someone unique. I'm doing something different. I mean, there might be some very small part of me, but I don't think it's me because I'm not doing anything unique. But it is this creative imagination that students bring. They think differently. They react differently. They have new ideas. And... That is so exciting to see. It has always been. And the, coming back to the trekking club at Symbiosis College, remember we used to go on these two, three-day treks outside Pune, go and sleep on the stone floor in the forts on top of hills. Uh, I forget that. Around. Sorry? I can't forget that. And the stories, right? So the stories that we could tell from all of those uh, visits, which I'm not going to. But what those things did was to, I think it deconstructed, it destroyed that teacher-student distance or hierarchy where the teachers always, the instructor is always this godlike creature and who has all the power and who says everything. And the student is just someone who takes in what the teacher is sort of graciously giving. That kind of old model, I think, got broken on those tracks that we did where the students were playing pranks on me. The students were the leaders and knew where to go to navigate and do all these things. And I was following all of you. So in that sense, I feel that it helped a huge amount in checking that imbalance that is normally there in a classroom where a teacher starts and stands in front of the class and then just sort of delivers gyan to everyone in front of her. I think some things need clarification over here. First is I think a lot of the pranks that you're talking about uh, originated from you and a lot of what students did was more of a retaliation or a tit for tat. There is something very unique about you and I'm going to narrate an incident that I remember. Tina as was always a very good dancer and she was in the college yeah. team. I kind of joined in later and I remember discussing this with you in class during our English lecture and you said, have you seen the movie Grease? And I said, no. And you were like, oh my God, you're in college and you've not seen the movie Grease and you call yourself a dancer. And you just <laughs> that, Dennis and me, for Grease, which was in, I think, in Vijay for a week. I don't remember the theater, but it was some 
small time theater that much i remember yeah and i was like oh my god like my teacher is actually taking me for a movie <laughs> obviously a lot before my time the movie is from but i loved it it was that movie was not your generation i know and sort of you know i it would have been outdated i had kind of forgotten about this until you had you reminded me about it you know but as you were talking it was like oh yeah i remember i don't remember which theater and so on but it's just the fun times that we had there didn't seem to be any plan to it on my part it was not something that you know i thought of beforehand saying that this is something i need to do as part of my teaching like i said it was a two way thing where it was impossible to resist the kind of enthusiasm that tina and dennis and hugh show this was the only my my reference and this was the thing that i watch it to this day i mean that's a guilty secret so that is the movie that i thought of and i said why not let's go and see whether that gives you any inspiration so for your own dancing by the way tina was so amazing Oh, yeah. I just continue to be amazed by the laughter, the excitement, the energy of that stage of life that you guys brought to the experience. I want to sort of say one more thing about the Symbiosis Trekkers. I think one very important thing for me was how well you guys, like you, Tina, Dennis, you were from an English medium school, right? Mm-hmm. And then there was a bunch of students from marathi medium schools and there was no hierarchy or difference between all of you in that trekking club unlike in the larger world where your english and marathi seem to matter this was so valuable and i felt so much at home because of that and i think that i fed off that multilingual multicultural context of our group and so i think overall it was a mutually beneficial situation i got probably got more than what i gave in that context confession over here i could speak zero marathi before i joined the <laughs> trekking club then being one of the leaders so to say i mean in a way yeah. um, i had to learn marathi right because a lot of the places you were going to you had to right. communicate in marathi with people right. transporting you or those who are cooking food for you you know at the foothills of the fort to this day I speak uh, with my own siblings we speak in Marathi at home. Oh you kidding really? I didn't yeah. know that. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Much to the annoyance of my uh, wife uh, <laughs> we speak in uh, Marathi where you know when we're just among ourselves. No for me as you realize you've given a little bit of my biography there but this kind of multilingual experience or this kind of multilingual philosophy where you don't think of the hierarchies of english and marathi and you create this experience which is i'm struggling for words here but you know this kind of a syncretic experience a diverse experience where each one brings so much difference together to this one experience i think that was just brilliant and i learned so much from that Oh yeah I think the trekking club was a unique experience in itself even if you take it away from Simbi and it still ranks <laughs> lessons of life you get from <laughs> the trekking club so that made you I think easily one of the coolest teachers that we've had I think almost everyone in the trekking club or those who have been in your additional english class would kind of agree with so do you still treat students in the same way yeah 
that has been my unconscious teaching philosophy and here in the us i think it is not that uncommon because there are lots of professors who don't follow that hierarchy the teaching model is different right but even in india i have lots of friends who are in the teaching community who have these brilliant relationships with students different ways now you're talking about now now but i imagine like i didn't know them at that time when i was in india and i know them now after coming here but they they now they are in india it is now because i know them after i came to the us but i don't know whether i was that unique it would be for the students to decide but i did what felt the right thing to do or the easy like it came easily to me that's how i taught and tried to do the best thing in terms of what's the best way to teach a subject but also what's the best way to create a community of students because one of the things i strongly believe in and has worked for me in my classes is when the students bond amongst themselves and they create a community amongst themselves they learn better in class creating those experiences which help students bond together i think that is something that i try consciously to do now i probably was doing it unconsciously or not conscious pedagogy at that time now i try to do it consciously so let's go back to the start okay so you've had an incredible career as a professor how did you decide to go into studying various languages and literatures it's a weird thing but literature study was conscious choice right since 7th or 8th standard for me that's what i remember like as far as back as i can remember i have always thought of studying literature so when i was in dastur high school for example and i credit i think i just had amazing teachers who encouraged this in me and hence i was steered in this direction like i remember i had this english teacher in dastur girls high school mrs edalji who was so formidable but extremely conscientious about the kind of english teaching that she did in class and she pushed the students to write better essays and be conscious of the language they used and so on and i think her class was one of the classes i distinctly remember saying oh this is something i would like to continue doing it was right since school and then i was very very lucky to get incredible teachers right through for example in ma when i was studying ma at university of pune i had uh, professor rajiv patke who again was unbelievably strict we were so terrified of him but also with a knowledge base that was almost limitless it felt at that time and what he taught me in his class about modernist literature i still remember and build upon it today wow. 30 years wow. down the line the depth of his excitement about good writing good literature and especially poetry at his classes steered me towards poetry and the funny thing is he ended up being on my phd committee again in at he's at the national university of singapore now he also steered me towards arun kolhatkar the poetry like he wrote about it his taste influences me in what i read right so there were these mrs adelji there was miss shahani in ferguson college so i have been influenced a lot by the incredible teachers that have been so let's talk more about that i, I want to know more about bombay modern and could you tell those who might not know about it what it is about so the book it's called bombay modern arun kolatkar and bilingual literary culture 
it is an attempt to reach out to understand that golden age of Indian writing, film, the arts, when some of the greatest minds of post-independence India were working together in various regions, mediums, genres, all at the same time. That is this, what is the Satotri or the post-1960 period. I chose Bombay as the as the location to study in the period as the Satotri period to look at the publishing and writing circles in Marathi and English poetry at that time. And in particular, this form of journal called the Little Magazine that they created. These little magazines, frequently handmade, cyclo-styled, not disseminated for profit, these became the sources of the poetry that is the canon in Marathi and English today. So I take Arun Kolatkar's bilingual poetry in Marathi and English in order to uncover some of these characteristic elements of the period, this amazing period that I think is one of the richest in post-colonial India. What was it about Arun Kolatkar that kind of struck out to you, like you know, something out of the ordinary or that really gripped you? How should I put it? Like, it's such a vast topic. I'm, can I read out a very short four-line poem of his and then I'll it's in Marathi, but I'll translate into English and it kind of encapsulates what I feel. I use this in my epilogue, in the epilogue of my book, The Bombay Modern. Would that be okay? Absolutely. I'd love to hear it. So here's the poem in Marathi. Aan tuze ganpati sod majha doyat rangena ubhe raha manava sagrayansa visarjan karnare So this short poem refers to the annual festival of Ganesh Chaturthi in Bombay obviously, that you know of, where at the end of a seven to ten day festival, the Ganpati idols are taken out in a noisy procession on the road to the beach and then where they're immersed in the sea. So in this poem, Ganpati, Kolatka's speaker, the poetic speaker in this poem, asks the world to, quote, bring your Ganeshas or your Ganpatis, Arntuze Ganpati. And then to glide them, presumably, in the rivers of his eyes. Sod majha The speaker says he will take care of all the cued Ganeshas. Rangeno ubhe raha manava. And bid them all a ritual goodbye by drowning them in his irreverent sagrayansa visarjan karnare. So his irreverent eye takes in, will take in, immerse in itself and dislodge all unquestioned dogmas. It is this kind of stated and unstated refusal to ignore, pardon my language, but to ignore the BS. This kind of unflinching look at his own world. The imaginative ways in which he manipulates the tools of his language or the refusal to bow down to the world of which he was a reluctant part. So many reasons why he appeals to readers of poetry and to me. I hope that gives you a taste. I hope you've enjoyed this part of my interview with Anjali. Please tune in again next week to hear part two, where Anjali shares additional insights and her green pill moment. Don't miss it. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.